Hi, this is Mark Rabin. Before the episode, let me quickly tell you about my new book. It's titled Measures of Success. It's a book that will help you react less to your performance metrics, every up and down in those. It'll help you lead better. It'll help you improve more. So you can learn more about the book by going to www.measuresofsuccessbook.com or you can search Amazon. It's available as a print book, a Kindle book. It's available through Apple Books. I hope you'll check it out. Hi, this is Mark Raven. If you like this podcast, you might realize I have a blog, leanblog.org. Did you also know that I have another podcast called Lean Blog Audio? And there I basically, occasionally, or as often as I can, I read audiobook style versions of blog posts. So you can go to leanblog.org slash audio or search in your favorite podcast place for Lean Blog Audio. I hope that'll give you something else uh, that's food for thought, something else to help you in your lean journey. Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 220 of the podcast for March 30th, 2015. My guest today is someone I've wanted to interview for a really long time. He's Dr. Robert Wachter. He's one of the leading voices in the modern patient safety movement. He's most recently author of a brand new book, The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm at the Dawn of Medicine's Computer Age. So in this episode, we're going to cover topics including how he got started in the patient safety field, what he thinks of the different estimates and studies about um, the scale of um, harm and death caused by medical errors. We're going to talk about his perspectives on lean and patient safety. And we're also going to then dive into topics from his book, including pros and cons, uh, the good and the bad of electronic medical records and electronic health records, what kind of problems are they solving? What new problems are they creating? And at the end of the episode, he's going to share a story from the book about a preventable medication error that's a combination of bad systems, human factors problems, uh, and bad process. So I really enjoyed the book. I really encourage you to read The Digital Doctor. Um, he's also written previous books that I've read, including Understanding Patient Safety, which is now in a second edition, and the book Internal Bleeding. He's a professor and associate chairman of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. He's the chief of the division of hospital medicine and chief of the medical service at UCSF Medical Center. Dr. Walker actually coined the term hospitalist in a 1996 New England Journal of Medicine article. I, I didn't realize that about him until prepping uh, for the interview, and he's the past president for the Society of Hospital Medicine. So I hope you'll enjoy the episode. If you'd like to see show notes and links to the book, or if you'd like to leave a comment, please go to leanblog.org slash 220. Hey, Bob, thanks for being a guest. It's a real pleasure to have you here today. It's a great pleasure to be here, Mark. Thanks. So, you know, we're, we're going to talk a lot about your upcoming book, The Digital Doctor, but um, I'm curious to hear first about your involvement in the patient safety movement. If you could introduce yourself and, and your background as a physician, and I think it would be great to hear about how um, you became a leader in patient safety. Well, sure, I'd love to. Um, I, my background kind of spools back to college when I was a political science major, and, uh, and for some reason knew I wanted to be a doctor, but was always interested in the way systems worked or didn't work, and 
didn't understand that there were careers in medicine where you could combine those interests into something that was semi-coherent. Uh, so I always thought I'd become a doctor and I would kind of be interested in policy and politics on the side. Uh, and then uh, th after my training in internal medicine and uh, did a fellowship in health policy at, uh, at Stanford, started a faculty career and kind of um, moved from issue to issue. That seems to be my pattern, which is every five to seven years, there's an issue that captivates me. And it, it's an issue that has to seem really important to clinicians and patients. So pretty close to the ground rather than insurance policy, for example. Um, and have political and policy dimensions usually involve money, which uh, usually has some controversy associated with it. And, um, and those issues I find I, I just enjoy trying to go in there and deeply understand them and articulate what's going on in, in a way that people find helpful. So the way patient safety happened was a little bit roundabout. I, I was uh, in 1996, I had a new job running the medical service at our big academic hospital in San Francisco. Uh, I had a boss who asked me to try to come up with some innovative way of organizing hospital care, and we started essentially the first academic hospitalist program, and I wrote an article in the New England Journal in 96 that coined that term hospitalist. And as the field grew over the course of its first few years, and since then it's become the fastest growing specialty in history, um, I was worried a little bit about the field, and I was worried because we were being branded as being about saving money, and, I, and for a physician thought it was important to be about more than that, about making care better. My first fellow uh, was a guy named Kaveh Shojania, who had done a residency at the Brigham and arrived at UCSF in 99. And I said, what do you want to study? And he said, patient safety. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, you know, I, I was at Harvard and there are these people there like Lucian Leap and Atul Gawande and David Bates who are studying errors. And it's sort of getting to be an important and, and interesting and hot issue. And sort of all of that came together, and then the IOM report, uh, Terra's Human, came out at about the same time, and a bunch of light bulbs went off. And I said, this is a really interesting, important issue, uh, and one I think that my approach, which is sort of being a generalist and diving in and trying to understand a lot of different facets of a multifaceted issue, might turn out to be valuable, and that's kind of how it all started. And, you know, here we are, of course, in 2015, and it, it's still, patient safety is still uh, quite a large problem and, and, and a crisis um, of sorts. Um, there are, I think, somewhat unknowable numbers and different estimates, you know, that started with that IOM report. And there's been more recent estimates about the number of Americans who die each year as a result of preventable medical errors. I'm, I'm curious, wh which of those estimates, which of those numbers do you feel like are at least most likely to be accurate or descriptive of the uh, you know the scope of this problem it's hard to know uh, i'm not sure it obviously matters to the individual patients and families who are harmed and killed at a policy level uh, whether it's a jumbo jet a day or three jumbo jets a day it's it's sort of above a threshold that that we should care about it and and focus on it more than we have um, I'd say the most credible numbers, unfortunately, are probably still the numbers that the IOM used, which came from a study that's now almost 25 or 30 years old from the Harvard Medical Practice Study, because that involved very, very detailed chart reviews of, of tens of thousands of patients and, and painstaking uh, research methods. The more recent studies where you sometimes see two or 300,000 numbers, the, the methods aren't quite as robust. But Clearly, it's a big number. There's a little concern that uh, that the more recent numbers, um, which sometimes look worse and make it look like we're, we're getting worse, 
involve uh, new methods and in some ways as we look for harm, we find it. And so my own sense is that we've gotten uh, better, although certainly not better enough, but in the areas that, that the kind of discrete areas where we, kind of, we really do know how to measure, for example, certain healthcare associated infections, um, even medication errors. The evidence is pretty good that we have improved somewhat, certainly not enough. There are other areas of, of, uh, of the patient safety field, the most prominent being diagnostic errors, where we have absolutely no idea how much harm there is because it's so hard to measure. But it's clearly, uh, it's clearly substantial. We have clearly under-resourced and under-attended to this issue. I think that has gotten better in the last 10 or 15 years, but it's still not Good enough, in part because as we get better, uh, new hazards come our way. Uh, as we put in certain safety fixes, we learn that it's a little bit of guacamole that 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 uh, that you know. Yes, you fix one thing, and another thing pops out the other end. So, uh, one prominent example, of course, is computerization, which I've gotten interested in, in recently. But the uh, another kind of uh, interesting example is is resident resident duty hours, where we shorten the number of hours that residents work, which seems like a sensible thing to do. Uh, but what pops out the back end is we have far more handoffs. So now we have less fatigued people, but now we have to figure out how to, ha- how to do handoffs more effectively. And that's been a little bit of the story of the patient safety field. You, you take a step and a half forward and then one step backward and then uh, try again. Yeah. And I, I, I agree that um, I, I like the way you said that, well, we need to figure out how to do handoffs better because I think you know, from the lean perspective, we wouldn't accept the fact that, oh, you know, handoffs are done badly. Well, yeah. let's just, okay, well then, no, it's unsolvable. Well, of course, you know, it's it, that can be improved and we can break some of that maybe false choice between, uh, you know, we can do longer shifts or we can do, you know, we fewer handoffs We if we figure out how to do those better. And I, th- I think that's what we're seeing. I can tell you at my own institution, uh, when we shortened the duty hours for a year or two, it was pretty chaotic because, you know, we... We knew we had to have more handoffs. That the math is quite obvious, and and uh, and you know we we sort of all of a sudden had all kinds of shifts changing and people picking up patients, but we really hadn't thought of this as a systematic problem. And now I look at the way we do handoffs, and certainly far from perfect, but it is much much more organized, and and there is a plan, and people have thought deeply about how do we do it, what is the space, what is the timing, what's the protocol. Uh, and it's it's substantially better than it was a couple of years ago. Yeah. And, you know, back to the, the issue of things getting better in some instances. I mean, there, there are many success stories of, of hospitals, you know, reducing central line associated bloodstream infection rates by 90 or 95 percent. Hospitals that are reducing things like falls and pressure ulcers by 70 to 90 percent. So on, I think the thing that's frustrating to me is that it seems like on average things are getting better, but there's a wide variation where we have some people um, demonstrating great success in a lot of hospitals that still seem stuck in old levels of performance. So I'm curious what you think, you know, here, you know, current current day, what are some of the biggest barriers that prevent every hospital from repeating some of these same successes that we see in certain cases? There are there are a lot of them, as as, as you know from your work. There, uh, I'd say the biggest one until recently, and this has changed recently or changing, and I think it's exciting. Until recently, the uh, the pressure to improve was largely uh, moral and ethical, and that's important. I think most people in healthcare are in healthcare for the right reasons and don't want to harm people. 
But as we've come to learn how hard this work is and how much system change it involves and how that requires substantial amounts of resources and, you know, everything from new kinds of training to new organizational structures to new, new uses data to new, new IT systems, uh, you're just not going to get there unless the institution is making a significant investment in making it better. And if you are a hospital or a clinic and you're going to get paid precisely the same, whether you deliver high quality or poor quality care or safe care or unsafe care, uh, then it's it's unlikely that you're going to make that investment. And I think that was the state of affairs until fairly recently, you know, three to five years ago. Uh, you know, Medicare paid the best hospital and the worst hospital in the country exactly the same. Now, that's not true. Now, there is there's about a five to seven percent uh, payment that's at risk based on your performance. And that's going up pretty quickly. So what that means is that boards and CEOs and other leaders now have a significant business incentive uh, that 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 links to their moral incentive to pay attention to this. Uh, and I think that's what you see. I think you see organizations beginning to uh, to focus on this with the uh, give it the attention that it deserves, give it the resources it deserves. And now we're seeing kind of the usual bell-shaped curve of some of them are figuring it out more quickly than others because it's hard. It's not it's not like you decide this week that we're going to focus on providing say, a safer environment or, or or causing less harm. And next week, you're going to make a difference. It's really a three to five year journey. When you look at the places that have made significant progress, you know, they'll tell you that they've been working at this for five to 10 years. And then there are other places that really just started a couple of years ago. So last question before we, we dive into the digital doctor. Um, I'm curious what your perspectives are on um, you know, interface between lean principles and practices and the modern patient safety movement. Do you see or hear about things that, that are working well? And, and do you have any concerns or, or suggestions uh, about all of this? Yeah, you know, I, I find lean to be extraordinarily interesting and I'm, I'm not an expert. It's really only come to my own organization, UCSF, over the last couple of years. And I, I've seen real successes and I've seen some uh, some challenges. Um, I think part of the reason that it's come to many organizations uh, fairly recently, and it was not kind of, it was not baked into the the original formula to that most organizations use to attack patient safety, is that I think people s tend to see it as a as an efficiency maneuver and a waste reduction maneuver and tend to see that on a different axis as being on a different axis than patient safety. And as you've said and written, and I really do believe, uh, they are very tightly intertwined. Uh, but I think we didn't approach it that way. I think we approached patient safety as uh, uh, let's, you know, let's uh, understand what our hazards are, what where we're seeing harm around the organization. Uh, let's analyze it case by case. Let's try to put in place a, a, a plan, an action plan that deals with that thing that we saw last week. And then let's see how it works. And uh, and sort of the techniques to do that were, were generally PDSA kind of cycles. And then over the last five to seven years, so that was the original approach, which was really the kind of one-off, uh, you know, let's analyze each error one at a time and approach it in a, in a, in a silo. Um, I think a healthy movement in the patient safety field over the last five to six, seven years 
was in some ways the rebranding of patient safety as not being about errors so much as being about preventable harm. And that, that created a little bit of a different worldview, which was to rather than focus quite so much on the individual error, the dramatic, we cut off the wrong leg or gave a kid an you know, antibiotic that, that, that he was allergic to, uh, looking around the organization more systematically at, at, at harms that the literature tells us could be prevented. And that then led to kind of a more systematic approach to attacking the issues. But still in most organizations, I think lean was seen as being too ambitious, too kind of organization-wide, too structured for many organizations to embrace. And I think what we're seeing now is, uh, is because of the pressures now on efficiency and cost, which really only reemerged over the last three or four years. You know, they certainly were omnipresent in the mid-90s, and then we all decided we didn't like managed care, and they kind of went away for about 10 or 12 years. Uh, and we were in a fantasy land like, all right, let's just pay attention to quality and safety and maybe a little bit about patient experience, but let's not pay any attention to cost. Now that cost came back. I think lean became lean emerged as probably the preferred technique to approach it, and as organizations began to embrace lean, I think they are beginning to see that it's relevant for improvement in all sorts of domains, including patient safety. So I think we sort of backed into uh, using a lean approach to patient safety. Rather, it certainly was not, other than a few very forward-thinking organizations, it was not in the playbook in the early years of the patient safety field, and I think that probably was a mistake in that uh, organizations that have embraced lean and used it effectively I think see that it, it has all sorts of benefits in, in all sorts of performance improvement domains, including patient safety. Yeah. And I, and I think that wasn't an all too common, was not an all too common um, situation where I think it's maybe a combination of, of some people were, I think, in, incorrectly describing lean as being all about cost and all about efficiency. And then I think there were a lot of organizations that were really just looking for a cost type solution. So there was kind of a, you know, a, in a way, a match there in terms of, um, you know, goals that might not have been as balanced as they should have been. And, you know, I think a description of lean as, as an approach that maybe wasn't as holistic or, or correct as, uh, as it really is. So um, th thank you for, you know, yeah. sharing. I, I, let me, I'd say one more thing yeah. about that, which is, I think it's easier for organizations to approach uh, issues piecemeal um, than it is to try to change kind of institutional practice around improvement. And so, uh, you know, when the safety field emerged, it, 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 it you know, yes, it, people said, all right, let's do PDSA cycles. Let's, you know, let's try some kind of standardized method to improve uh improve our performance but but that wasn't the crux of the matter there in most organizations i'd say including my own that was not a huge institutional investment and imperative to come up with a a essentially a business model for the way we do improvement the the real change was to come up with an organizational approach to attack a new target which was harm or errors and that was a big deal in and of itself. So I think organizations felt like our plates are pretty full just trying to attack, you know, errors, harm, uh, evidence-based practice, uh, more recently patient experience. Uh, and it was only, I think it was two things that, that's happened that have happened in the last few years. One is 
because of the imperatives on cost and waste, people have begun thinking about lean as, a, as, as an important technique. And then if they've gotten that right, have seen that lean may be applicable to all of these other problems. And I think the second is that disappointment set in, that, that they became they came to realize that having a, even with a uh, institutional imperative to attack targets like harm or patient experience, if you don't have an institutional language and and methodology for attacking these things where everybody's on the same page, you're not going to be very good at it. And I think that's, it was sort of that gap that people saw. I'd say those two things came together, the cost imperative and the recognition that yeah. what they were doing was not working very well that have led a lot of organizations to embrace this. And, and going back even to Lucian Leap and Don Berwick and others who we're learning from uh, Dr. Deming. I mean, I think, you know, you know, Deming taught about the need to look at uh, an organization or to look at the whole system instead of looking at silos and pieces. And, you know, that's a powerful message. But I guess, you know, if that were easy, we would all be in, you know, systems thinking, learning organizations. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, I think that's, that's I, yeah. I think that's that certainly was my feeling. I, you know, I embrace the idea of systems thinking. And I remember the first edition I wrote uh, of my my. Uh, patient safety textbook, you know, it's really all about systems thinking, it's about thinking about errors in a new way. But I don't, I'm not even sure I mentioned Lee in, in that, you know, I wrote it maybe uh, seven or eight years ago. Uh, it was not really on the radar screen of the patient safety field. The pa patient safety field embraced this idea that errors are not caused by individual bad people most of the time. They are system glitches. But I think in terms of a systematic method for moving from, okay, we got that, to what are we going to do now? Uh, I think we were a little bit fuzzy on that. Yeah. Well, so maybe that, that's our transition here to talk about um, the digital doctor and and maybe you know <laughs> problems with software or clumsy implementations are also system problems and not the fault of uh, of, of bad apples either. But um, you know the subtitle of, of your book is is interesting: um, hope, hype, and harm at the dawn of, of medicine's computer age. And maybe we can, we can delve into to each of those. But, you know, I'm curious to hear first, um, you know, there's been so much hope and hype um, in the last couple of years, but, you know, healthcare and a lot of areas of healthcare have been really slow to adopt modern software systems. And I'm curious what some of your thoughts are about why, you know, healthcare maybe, you know, had to be incentivized or dragged into uh, a world of electronic medical records and electronic health records? Yeah, I think some, it, it, first of all, even just hearing you say that, you know, it, it is extraordinary that, that healthcare, which is almost one-fifth of our economy and arguably the most complex and information-intensive industry that we have, uh, and where the stakes are probably higher than any other, uh, embraced paper and pencil until very recently and required $30 billion of federal incentive money to get us to become a digital industry. Just, just on the face of it, that's, that's kind of shocking. Uh, why did it happen? I think part of it was the absence of a, the, the screwy incentives that, that, that exist in healthcare that do not place um, the same pressures that every other business has to figure out how do what we deliver the best quality, safest thing at the lowest possible cost. I think those incentives drove every other industry to use technology tools effectively. And those incentives are so mixed and, and, and kind of bizarre in healthcare that I think that was part of the problem. 
Uh, and then you have kind of a vicious cycle, which is is wiring a, a, a six or seven hundred bed hospital like my own is an extraordinarily complex act. And if there is not a business incentive for the hospital to buy a system, then you're not going to see the software companies enter the field and and develop the kinds of programs that you need. Nor are you going to see what really needs to happen, which is version 1.0 leads to 2.0 leads to 12.0, because uh, this is too hard to get it right on the first and the first uh, shot out. You know, the first time it's clunky, and then people use it and give feedback, and you improve and you iterate, and then it gets better. So all of that stuff, which which is really the history of software design in every other field, that dynamic was was really not true in healthcare. And I guess the final thing is, uh, you know, if you are uh, if you were a 26-year-old tinkering in a garage and, you know, in Cupertino working on the next new great software product, you're not going to work on a hospital electronic health record system. The regulatory environment is too complex. It's, uh, you know, the, the healthcare is not a problem that you see in your own life. You see the need to develop the new Snapchat or, or Instagram. And so uh, all of those things kind of marbled together, I think, led to this, what was really an enormous uh, business failure and market failure, which is the market did not push the healthcare system to go digital, and the federal government uh, ended up deciding that it needed to enter the fray and 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 put in a pretty large amount of incentive dollars to get us to do it. Right. So you know, thirty billion dollars in um, you know, stimulus money uh, you know, under the High Tech Act that was um, that was spent. Um, for EHR adoption, I'm curious from from what you found or what you talk about in the book. What are some of the pros and cons of that? You know, kind of really fast burst flood of money, flood of new technology. Um, what what what? How did that play out? I believe it was the right thing to do. I believe that you know politics sometimes is the art of the possible, mm-hmm. and if you buy the premise which which I came to buy, which is that this was a market failure, healthcare was not going digital quickly enough and that if it was going to go digital in an effective way it, it there's no way to get to you know step z without be going through much of the rest of the alphabet first so to me it was sort of you had to start somewhere we had to create a tipping point and it was not happening on its own so then you come up with all right how is this going to happen think about the political environment in washington you know try to find 30 billion dollars anywhere to do anything and and get that through Congress. It's an impossibility. And so the art of the possible was in 2008, the economy imploded. There was a $700 billion stimulus package to prevent a depression uh, for, quote, shovel-ready projects. And some smart health policy folks were there and said, here is our one chance. And I believe it was the one chance. I believe that if that chance had passed, there is no way in a million years they would have found $30 billion or even $5 billion to do this. So my own feeling was this was a smart move politically and against its main goal, which was to get healthcare to go digital, it worked. If you look at the percentage of doctors' offices and hospitals that were that had electronic health records and were really fundamentally digital, everybody had some computers laying around, but really fundamentally did their work in a digital environment. That percentage in 2008 was 10 percent. Today, it's, it's probably north of 70 percent. And not only is this sort of an, an electronic health record issue, but I remember when I interviewed David Blumenthal, who was the, the head of the, the federal health IT czar at the time all this happened. And I said, well, David, you know, people have said, by, because the federal government got so involved, you know, you've stifled innovation. 
And he said, are you kidding me? You know, go down and spend a little time at some of the companies in Silicon Valley. And he was absolutely right because the, the market now for health IT goes well beyond electronic health records. The, the, there were billions and billions spent last year on startups and health IT. A young kid coming out of Stanford MIT today is actually thinking about developing IT tools for healthcare. They were not thinking about that. So I think what the federal government did with their investment was legitimize, create a market, legitimize the market, get us over the hump and create an environment where uh, where now we're practicing a different kind of medicine. We're practicing digital medicine. We weren't before. So that's the good news. And I think it is largely good news. Uh, the bad news, and I'm not sure this was anybody's fault or could have gone very differently. Uh, first of all, the systems are clunky. So here's the history. Here's, here's the, the pushback I hear periodically, which is they should have waited until the systems were better. Well, no, <laughs> the systems were not going to get better until people actually bought them, used them, pushed back on the company. New entrants came in the field and said, you know, Epic or Cerner, they're okay, but they don't do this and that. Here's my product and it's better. That's happening today. It was not happening before. So this idea of waiting till the products were better was not going to happen. The second pushback you hear is on interoperability, which is, you know, the, pro the, the, the existing software is often relatively closed and it, it would be great if everything talked to each other. It would be great if we had the app store. Again, I think that that coming out in, in you know, five or six years ago and saying that's the first thing we're going to do would have been a mistake. I think the first thing you wanted to do was get everybody on computers and, and using decent systems and getting used to it. And the next thing that you do, which is now, is to say, all right, you know, UCSF, you've got a computer system and it's, it's, you're using it for everything. Paper is gone. You're seeing benefits. And you're on Epic, so it, you talk to other Epic places, which is good because there are a lot of them. But if a patient of yours is hospitalized at a non-Epic place, it's pretty tough to get the information around. Now you have the federal government kind of you know, knocking people's heads together and saying, now it's time, folks, to play well together, create the kind of structure that allows you to have interoperability. So I think, again, you know, it would be nice to be there today. I think it's, it, it, was, it, was, it was unreasonable to ask for that on day one. And I guess the final sort of negative is when the federal government decided to put $30 billion into it, it said, well, we also have to regulate this market because what a scandal that would be if we gave hospitals and doctors, you know, tens of millions of dollars. And it turned out they bought computers and stuck them on a shelf and never used them. So they yeah. said, we're going to have to regulate this. We're going to have to make sure you're buying good systems that do good things. And how you feel about this partly may depend on what your political stripe is. But even as a, uh, a good San Francisco Democrat, I think the feds went too far. I think they that, you know, they had to be involved in the early days here. And the, the involvement is in a program called Meaningful Use. They had to be involved in making sure people bought the computers and were beginning to use them in effective ways. But you start creating a regulatory apparatus against something like technology. You start having the federal government dictating things like fonts and how, you know, how the machines work, work, you know, basically do their work and think about if the feds were dictating to Apple, you know, what the iPhone should look like or dictating to Google what their, what their search should do. It just, it doesn't work. And I think that the feds have come to realize that there's a lot of pushback. So I think that meaningful use program went way too far. Yeah. Well, and you, you say you're a San Francisco Democrat. I'm sitting here in Texas, where, as they say, even the Democrats are Republican. Right, so, exactly. You know, the uh, the things that jump out at me, though, in the book, when you talked about the regulation or this this most recent, uh, I believe it was the, the second wave of meaningful use about 
um, doctor's offices or hospitals having to share their um, discharge instructions um, and, and that they're just kind of um, broadcasting them out to all sorts of organizations and sending faxes or electronic messages that I think the lean thinker in me, I'll set politics aside. So the lean thinker in me would say, what waste if they're if they're yeah. just saying, well, hey, well, we're checking that box. You said we have to blast it out to people whether they need it or not. Right. Um, that that right. seems silly. I think that's the that's the issue. You know, I've, one of the fun parts about doing the book was once I got into it, I realized the only way to do this well and, uh, and, and, and in an interesting way was to talk to people. My wife's a journalist, and when I told her the idea of the book, she said the only way to do this is to do it journalistically. So I went around and I interviewed about 90, close to 100 people. And, and, and what I came to learn was not that surprising, which is these are largely good, smart people, the federal policymakers, the, the CEOs of the tech companies, the primary care doctor trying to do her job in Dubuque, Iowa, the patient on a peer-to-peer -peer community site. These are all good people, but you know, people see the world from their perspective. And if you're a federal policymaker in the Beltway, you think, you know, sure, let's, you know, just this standard, it's not, it's not that hard to meet and it's going to make the world a better place. And my advantage was then to go to the primary care doctor in Dubuque or go to the chief medical information officer who's, who's now spending all of his or her time just trying to check those boxes and you see the amount of silliness and the amount of box checking and gaming that's involved in just meeting the federal standards. And that's when you come to realize that, you know, I really do believe that the feds had a crucial role here and, sh and should be praised for what they did early on. But the history of technology and complex technology, uh, I think most vividly illustrated by the Internet, is the feds were very involved early on. I mean, the Internet would not have happened without the Defense Department and DARPA. But fairly early in the game, they said, we better pull back and let the, let the community run this thing. And that was an incredibly smart and sage thing to do. And I think that's the stage we're at here, where it was really important that the feds were involved early. And it remains important that they be involved in areas like security and privacy and involved in trying to promote interoperability. But they had gotten so far in the weeds and the amount of sort of wheel spinning and, 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 and box checking uh, rather than innovating was just too strong. And I think the time has come for them to pull, to pull back. Well, and I, I, before we jump into maybe one final question here to tie things back together between patient safety and healthcare IT, um, I, I will make a comment about the book that um, I, I do think you, you uh, succeeded in writing it in a journalistic fact-finding uh, approach that you, you weren't writing it as an advocate one way or another, um, that, that there was, I, I think, a lot of balance in the book about the things that are working well, the things that are challenges. And maybe, you know, last question on, on that sort of, you know, pro-con um, uh, analysis of what's happening of, um, you know, and one of the things that jumps out to me again, and I think, you know, we, we would agree patient safety is a non partisan issue of, you know, looking at how, um, you know, there's this, this flood of information technology in some ways helps prevent certain types of errors and protect patients, but there are new and sometimes different risks that, that get introduced, you know, in, in the book, the one thing that stood out to me, if, if, maybe if you can tell the story briefly, or at least reflect on it, the, uh, the 16 year old patient who was given 39 times the correct um, antibiotic dose. And to me, I look and say, well, this is classic system failure. It's not just a technology issue. It involves human factors and psychology and workflows and just one of those classic sad situations where things line up um, very badly. So 
Um, I'm curious, maybe, you know, if you can touch on, on that sure. story and maybe reflect on, you know, net net is the technology making things safer, even if there are some new and different risks introduced. Yeah. Well, let me start with that, which is the answer I believe is, is unambiguously yes. And, and part of my goal in writing the book was to make clear that I am not a lot, not a lot. I uh, believe deeply that we have to computerize healthcare. I uh, am not really shocked that it's been harder than we, than we thought, uh, but, you know, that's kind of what got me into this was if you were working in the field of patient safety for the last 15 years, as I have been, we've all been waiting for computers to be our savior. And, you know, as we were waiting, uh, you know, Google developed search and, and uh, you know, Evernote came out and OpenTable came out and Twitter came out and the iPhone came out and the App Store came out. And so it was logical for us to believe that once we finally computerized, it would just be magic because it's such magic in the rest of our lives. And so what really got me to want to write the book was, as I looked around, seeing that that nobody's really talking about the challenges, the workflow, the culture, all the, all the, the difficult problems that were emerging. Uh, the books and, and articles about health IT were often sort of aired on the hypey side to me. And so I wanted to sort of, I actually wanted to write something for myself. Mostly I wanted to try to understand what was going on and uh, because I just found it so interesting and, 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 and just remarkable to see what was going on. And that, that, that case that you mentioned was, the, was really what got me to write the book. I was sitting at a meeting at UCSF now about a year and a half, two years ago. And uh, we were talking about a case where we gave a kid uh, a 39-fold dose, uh, overdose of a very common oral antibiotic called Septra. And the kid's correct dose, which everybody knew, this was a dose that he was on when he was outside of the hospital as a chronic, a chronic dose for him, was one pill twice a day. And through a series of glitches, sort of the first one being just a mistake, which is not that hard to make, uh, of prescribing with the uh, computer set at, on milligrams per kilogram rather than milligrams, uh, the doctor puts in an order for 39 of these pills. Now, that's a glitch. That's going to happen. Uh, in some ways, that's not the most interesting thing. The most interesting thing is that we have a safety system, and we now have a safety system uh, embedded in a state-of-the-art, you know, I think arguably the best computerized system that's out there, uh, with barcoding, and, and, and we also are in a fantastic hospital with smart, competent people who are very caring. Uh, and there were about five or six opportunities for this error, once it got generated by that first wrong order, to have been caught. But in a classic, you know, people I think probably know the Swiss cheese model mm -hmm. of yeah. you know, all these layers of protection that fail. It was classic Swiss cheese but now computerized Swiss cheese, which I had not seen before. You know, I've, I've been studying Swiss cheese for 15 years and keep saying, oh, well, a computer would have fixed that, a computer would fix that. So the nature of this was, okay, an alert fires and the doctor ignores it. An alert fires for the pharmacist and the pharmacist ignores it. The pharmacist is working in a space the size of a Winnebago with three other pharmacists while trying to deal with alerts coming up on every other medication. The alerts are unbelievably over-exuberant, and people, of course, do what people do, which is they just stop paying attention to them. In the old days, then, that order now for 39 antibiotic pills would have gone to a pharmacy technician who would have picked up a big jar of Septra and started pouring it out, and about halfway through probably would have said, what the hell, and stopped and tapped the pharmacist on the shoulder and said, what's going on here? 
but now it goes to a $7 million robot. And when you tell a $7 million robot to fetch 39 antibiotic pills, it says thank you, and it does it. And then the final step, which was really the most interesting one, was it went to a young nurse who was floating on an unfamiliar floor, the usual cultural issues of not wanting to look dumb and not feeling like she really had permission to stop the assembly line and pull the cord and, 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 uh, and check. And she then said, well, this is really kind of a screwy order. I've never heard of anything like this, but I don't know, maybe it's right. And I know to get to me, it had to go through a doctor and a pharmacist. And I have this piece of technology that will check and tell me for sure if it's right, called the barcode. But what I hadn't realized until I analyzed this error was at that stage of the medication safety process, the barcode's job is to defend the order. The barcode's job is to make sure the nurse gives the order that the doctor and the pharmacist have endorsed. And so she barcodes pill number one, and the barcode machine now says, no, that's not right. I need to see 38 it more. It verifies the error. Is, yeah. It verifies yeah. the error yeah. and makes people yeah. feel like, okay, you know, that must be right. Just to give you a sense of how screwy this is, this would be the equivalent of driving down the road and seeing a speed limit sign that said the speed limit on this road is 2,500 miles per hour. <laughs> and the nurse knew that. When I interviewed the nurse, I interviewed all the involved participants. And as you can imagine, they're all, they all feel horrible. They're all good people. Right, right. And the nurse said, yeah, I knew it was sort of weird, but I just, you know, uh, the system around me kept giving me signals that it was right. And so that was part of what led me to write the book and why the term uh, harm is in the title. Right. Uh, because, you know, it, it, I, there's no question that the computers are making care safer and better and they'll make care even better and safer as they get as they get the systems get better and our processes and human factors wrapping around the systems get better. But they are capable of breathtaking harm if we're not careful. And that's part of why I wanted to share that. Yeah. And you know, the things that jumped out to me were, like you said, the human factors of you know the pharmacist saying, Well, I you know, I know that that doctor who put that order in, I know that doctor's good. So there there must be yeah. a research, there must be some uh, some new protocol being tested. Uh, right. And and right. the the nurse asking the patient, the patient saying, "Well, I don't know." And I mean, like it seemed like there were just a lot of points where somebody th it was easy to rationalize. Well, this must be correct. Right. Yeah. And that's that's you know we're we're used to seeing that in errors in in, in lots of errors and and uh, and when you put yourself in the position of the person in that moment in the culture in the system, you can sort of understand how they would do that. I think the real difference here is the degree to which technology, which we've been counting on as to be our savior, has, has now created a new set of potential hazards. And this is not unique to healthcare. One of the things that was fun for me in doing the book was I spent a lot of time uh, talking to people in aviation, mm -hmm. uh, you know, arguably the most advanced field in technology and one that's really figured out a lot of stuff. But talking to Captain Sullenberger, who landed on right. the Hudson, uh, spending a day at Boeing, uh, they are struggling with this too now because it's kind of a fundamental problem with technology. As the technology gets better and better, that's good, but people begin to turn their brains off and trust the technology at times when they shouldn't. And final, final question here. You know, in, in the aftermath of that story, and, and the patient was, was okay, um, it sounded like the patient had a grand mal seizure and spent yeah. about a week in the ICU. So it was pretty but, terrible, but luckily didn't die. But survived, yeah. And that's the so the the patient as the victim and in healthcare sometimes people talk about the term the second victim of like you said all of these 
um, great, I'll, I'll assume great people in a system who didn't mean to make an error, they're caught up in that Swiss cheese effect or a bad system. It seemed like at least the way the story was told in the book that there was a distinct, at least I hope, lack of blame and lack of firing or punishing anybody and, and instead trying to learn from what happened to improve. That's correct. N none of the people were fired. Uh, all of the people, uh, to their immense credit, all of the people agreed to talk to me about the case. They, they, they didn't want their name used, but they were right. completely open right. and honest about it. Uh, we have decided as an organization to be open and honest about this case because we came to realize that this was not a unique UCSF event. People are right. seeing this throughout the country as they as they embrace these new systems. And, uh, you know, I don't think you can fix this sort of thing if you play, you know, if you hide the ball, if you basically say, we don't want to talk about this. So right. it's so dramatic and so interesting that uh, I'm really quite grateful to all of the involved participants, including the mother and, and, and the, the kid who was the victim of the error, for deciding that uh, it's really an act of tremendous charity to be open and honest about this. Yeah, well, and I'm grateful you were able to share it. I'm grateful for um, your new book, The Digital Doctor, um, also for past books, including Understanding Patient, Understanding Patient Safety and uh, another book, Internal Bleeding, um, that talks about medical mistakes and highly recommend those. And the other thing I'm going to recommend and link to in the show notes is a blog post that you wrote, Bob, about trying to find the right balance in not being a completely, you know, not leading with blame but not going to the other extreme of being completely blame-free, of trying to find the right balance of accountability. I, I thought that was well-written, and I'll share that with folks. I don't know if you have a, a comment on that real quick since I brought it up. But Yeah, I, I, it's, it's been a struggle I've had for the last five years or so in patient safety. I think we kind of uh, embraced this idea that it's all about bad systems. It's never about bad people. I think that was a wise thing to do in the early years of patient safety, particularly as it pertains to doctors, because if, if we had the patient safety field had started and we didn't say that, you would never have gotten buy-in from physicians because a physician hears error and there's an automatic ink blot test and, and all the physician can hear is malpractice, malpractice, malpractice. So we began with sort of the notion that it's all about systems and never finger pointing, never blame. And I began struggling five or six years ago with, you know, feeling like that's mostly right. But what do you do with the person who decides they don't mm -hmm. want to use the surgical checklist or they don't want to clean their hands? Yeah. And uh, and I heard I would go to hospitals and, you know, they would tell me, well, we have a 50 percent hand hygiene rate here. And I said, what are you doing to fix that? And they said, well, we're working on the system. And I'd walk around the hospital and I'd say, you know, the system looks pretty good. You have gel dispensers every three feet mm -hmm. and there are pictures of clinical leaders cleaning their hands, looking like they're having a party. And when they told me a 50% hand hygiene rate was a system problem, I hate to say it, but my BS detector went off <laughs> because I think the system, the problems, the system problem there was there was an intense lack of accountability for, yeah. for performance. People were choosing to ignore reasonable safety rules. And I think it's time that we rebalance that a little bit, which is why I've been focusing on this for the last few years. Yeah. Or, or sometimes leaders will hide behind saying, you know, they'll throw their hands up and say, well, it's a system problem. But well, you know, I think you know, maybe kind of wrap things up on, on the, the Dr. Deming reminiscing uh, again, Dr. Deming always said, well, you know, you can fix the system. Leaders are responsible for the system and, you know, let, let's work together um, to, to fix that. So 
I appreciate everything you're doing to try to help uh, fix our healthcare system. Um, again, our guest has been uh, Dr. Bob Wachter, um, talking about the digital doctor. And I want to thank you so much for being a guest today. Hey, it's a great pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.